We are counting down to Christmas here in week two of our Advent series, and one of the things that I want to start to exhort you to do as we get closer is to begin to shift your thinking about Christmas from just that birth story in Bethlehem of the Christ child, which by the way, we all love that story, right? We, most of us grew up with it, we love that story, but to shift our thinking about Christmas from just that story to a more complete view of what it means that the Savior has come. And that means not just loving the story of that first advent that's in the past, but anticipating his second advent in the future with an equal amount of passion. And as we observe an Old Testament Christmas this year, what that means is beginning to see the messianic promises in the Old Testament in all of their fullness, not just in the first century AD, but all the way to the end of days. Now, last Sunday, I gave you guys a long historical introduction to Isaiah chapter 9, which included touching on the famous prophecy uh, that comes a few chapters before the text we're looking at this morning, Isaiah 7, 14, that says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name what? Emmanuel, which we've already sung about this morning. First of all, we saw how that verse applied in the immediate context under the reign of King Ahaz of Judah, right? But then also how it was then projected into the future, pointing towards Mary and the birth of God's son. By the way, if you missed last Sunday's message, I strongly recommend that you go to our church website or our YouTube page and listen at least to that introduction. How long was it, Adam? I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minute introduction. But it gave you all the historical background of Isaiah 9 that you're going to need as we go through both today and the next few weeks. So if you didn't listen to it, go back and check that out. I briefly touched on a subject that I have talked about before here at Oak Hill, but it bears repeating every time we get back into Old Testament prophecy, and it's the concept of telescoping. And it's a concept that's gonna be very, very important for us to understand, even as we move forward in this particular season. Now, what do I mean by telescoping? Well, I'm gonna put an illustration on the screen so that you can perhaps understand it better because I'm a visual person, maybe you are as well. But think about this, when you look at a mountain range through a telescope or even binoculars, the various sets of mountains that you see, they appear to be stacked up against each other and they appear to be close to each other, but we know better, right? That's an optical illusion. If you saw this view and you said, oh, these mountains are really, really close to each other, but then you got in an airplane and you flew over those mountains, what would you find? That there's actually many miles in between those sets of mountains, right? There's actually vast unseen valleys and stretches of land between those different sets of mountains. And that's the concept in Old Testament prophecy. It's a principle that shows up quite often when a prophet speaks in an event that will have two or three unique fulfillments throughout time. And though the language can sometimes appear literally right next to each other on the page, from one verse to another, we know that sometimes the fulfillments come hundreds of years apart, sometimes even thousands of years apart. And that was the case in Isaiah 7:14. There was a near fulfillment just within two years of Isaiah talking about that particular subject matter. But then the ultimate fulfillment, that tall mountain in the back, was 700 years later 
at the birth of Christ. And as that photo shows, oftentimes it, the, the furthest one is the big one, right? That's where the fulfillment of prophecy is complete in all of its fullness. That's the standard pattern we see in the Old Testament. I'll give you another example of this principle that is explicitly explicitly given to us in scripture. In Isaiah 61, the prophet famously says, and you've heard this before, he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And that was all true in that context for Isaiah in the 8th century BC. But then what? We fast forward to Luke chapter 4, and we see Jesus at the launch of his public ministry go into the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he's handed a scroll to read, right? And what does he read? Exactly what I just read from Isaiah. He reads that text, and then it says, Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, And what a moment to be a fly on the wall to hear this, right? And he said to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. So Isaiah 61.1 had application in the 8th century BC in Isaiah's time, but then it found its complete fulfillment, see the snow-capped mountains, in the time of Christ, in the mission and the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is what we call telescoping. You with me on this? Good. It's going to be important. Grab your Bibles. If you haven't done so already, let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. What I want to do today, and hopefully this happened to some extent last Sunday, is to begin to connect some Christmas dots for us. We all grew up with a certain view of Christmas or certain experience of Christmas. For some of us, it was very biblical. Others, it was very not biblical or very shopping related or just warm feelings related, whatever. But it's so important when we gather as followers of Christ that we start to connect those dots so that we're celebrating the holiday well. We want to look at these verses that we know so well and look at them through a new lens, not just not just to carve them out of the Old Testament and put them on a Christmas card, right? But to actually read them in their context and then to trace what the Lord meant in that context and where he was telescoping into the future through his prophet. So today we're gonna look at verses two through five. And that means we're gonna study right up to the edge of the most famous of all Christmas prophecies, right? Isaiah 9, 6. And get this, we're gonna take two entire weeks to go through just that verse, the titles of Christ beginning next Sunday. So we're gonna get right up to that point. Let's, actually, let's back up to verse one and we'll read from there. Now remember, as we do that, remember last Sunday we said, wait, what's the first word in Isaiah chapter nine? But. It's a but or it's a nevertheless, right? Which means we gotta go back and we went back into chapter eight and we found out that chapter eight ended with Israel in distress and darkness, Right? A gloom of anguish had come upon the northern kingdom of Israel. There was this looming threat of the Assyrian war machine that was on the horizon. And Assyria was a tool of God's judgment to punish his people Israel. As we found out last Sunday, the Assyrians did historically invade Galilee and invade Samaria in the year 733 and 732 BC, just two years after Isaiah prophesied in chapter 7 about this virgin being, uh, being pregnant. But when we turn the page over to chapter nine, we see a completely different tone, right? Eight is full of gloom and darkness. 
chapter nine. Now Isaiah's not talking about judgment. He's actually talking about hope. So look at verse one. He says, but there will be no more gloom for who who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, meaning the Lord, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. And the best way to understand that phrase, treated them with contempt, was by the Lord bringing the Assyrians, again, as a tool of his judgment, upon Israel from the north, right? And I showed you this map last time. See the area in pink is Naphtali. The area in green there is Zebulun. They took the brunt of the Assyrian invasions because they're the most northern regions of this particular land, Galilee of the Gentiles, right? So that's what it means that the Lord treated them with content. All of the, the sort of brutal force of those invasions fell upon lower and upper Galilee. So have that in mind as we go on. Isaiah then continues. But later on, he says, now again, he's writing in the 8th century BC, later on, he, the Lord, shall make it, make what? Those particular lands, he shall make them glorious, he says. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. We'll come back to that in a moment. So that was last Sunday. Now, let's keep going with verse two. And the question is, in what way will Galilee be made glorious in the future? Here's the answer, verse two. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine or dawn on them. Now, already this morning, we've talked quite a bit about light. We've sung about light. And the metaphor of light is one of our favorites, right? When we talk about describing Jesus and the gospel, we often talk about light. But before we get to that, it's important that we look at the opposite of that, right? What about the darkness that's mentioned here? As we often say, there is no good news about the gospel of salvation unless you first accept that there is bad news, right? Bad news about the nature of man, bad news about his helpless condition. The same principle is true when we look at these contrasting ideas of darkness and light. In the neighborhood I live in, there's a couple people, you probably have them in your neighborhood too, who go bonkers with their Christmas lights. I mean, er thousands and thousands of lights. They spend so much time, all the inflatables, now the inflatables are out of control. We, we just got to stop that. But these spectacular Christmas displays in their front yards, all these thousands of lights beautifully arranged for us to enjoy. But guess what? In the daytime, they're not at all impressive. Even if they left them on, in the daytime, you would probably drive right by and not even notice them. But as soon as night falls and the darkness creeps in, those lights become extremely bright and they light up the whole neighborhood. So it's the depth of the darkness that makes that light brighter. And that's an important principle for us to understand. That light was so bright in this day because of the darkness that had enveloped the land. And the Bible's replete with references to darkness. You'll find, whether it's the, the, the Hebrew Old Testament or the Greek New Testament, you'll find the word darkness 145 times in the scriptures. And it does carry a slight variety of meanings depending upon the context. It can refer to disorder and confusion or uncertainty. Many times darkness is used to describe evil, which makes sense for ancient people who don't have electricity. The darkness meant something different to them than it does for us. We just flip on a light switch. But in the ancient context, the city gates were closed when darkness fell because everybody understood when darkness comes, that's when animals begin, dangerous animals, begin to creep around. That's when wicked men begin to engage in indecent acts. 
And so darkness for an ancient person meant evil. Darkness also associated with the shadow of death, especially in the Old Testament, this concept of the grave or sheol. In a practical sense, sometimes uh, darkness refers to a person that is locked up in prison or in slavery or is in bondage to sin or an evil spirit. But above all those uses, the most common use of darkness is talking about spiritual blindness. People who live in darkness are spiritually blind. They have, describes the condition of being lost and hopeless. When you don't have spiritual sight at all, that's what you are. You are lost and you are hopeless. And you see here in verse two, Isaiah describes that type of blind person as walking in that condition. Imagine walking through life blind, but that's what he describes it as, meaning that's the course of their life. Their day-to-day life is a groping around in the dark looking for a light switch that they actually don't even know they need. It's a terrible, terrible condition. This is how the people of Israel were living in Isaiah's day, in complete spiritual darkness. And you see in verse two, Isaiah describes not just the people, but the land itself had been enveloped in darkness and needed light. By the way, this is not all that different from our world today. We have a tendency to look far off and say, oh, those poor people, what about Southern California? Are we not enveloped in darkness these days? All the people that you're passing by each and every day in the market, at the mall, in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, they're groping their way through darkness right now, right? The darkness of a fallen life. And most of them don't realize that they're in that condition. That's why we have to be light bringers. That's why we, especially at this season of the year, need to be talking about the light that Christ brings. That's what they need most, right? Isaiah says it. They need a great light to shine upon them. That is the heart and the hope of Isaiah's prophecy, this great light that needs to shine in the darkness. So Isaiah sees in this present day, he looks around, he says, man, the northern kingdom's a mess. It's gloom, it's darkness. But in this passage, he sees something bright in the future, right? Have you ever been driving down the freeway and you suddenly get just walloped by a, by a freak storm and the rain comes down so fast that your wipers can't even keep up. And it's, it's weird. It doesn't happen a lot in our, in our part of the country. But when it does, this, it's just dumping on you, but you can look off in the, in, in the distance and there's still a part of the sky that the sun is shining. It's really weird. I'm not alone, right? You've seen this? It's weird. Well, that's what Isaiah, Isaiah sees here. In the immediate future, he sees the storm of God's judgment. It's going to fall on Israel first and later on Judah. But then he looks off into the far off future. He looks at one of those mountains in the distance and he sees the sun shining through these messianic promises that are going to transform his people and transform the land that they live in. So more than 700 years before the story of Bethlehem in the manger, Isaiah says God's promised Messiah will be a light bringer. God's promised Messiah will be a light bringer. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because, you know, a lot of us, we, we have homes and we, and, we, and we put up Christmas lights. How many of us think, what a drudgery? Come on. I thought it for years, like, oh, this is so hard. The next time you either put up your Christmas lights or you drive by and see Christmas lights, I want you to think of this principle. This is a part of Christmas, that the Messiah is a light bringer. In the fullness of the time, God sent forth his one and only son into the darkness of this fallen world to be its light. And its light is Emmanuel, God with us. 
And we know from the gospels that when God took on flesh, when he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, there was an explosion of light on the earth. We read about it in the text. Luke tells us how the heavenly host of angelic beings appeared to the shepherds. And it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. Can you imagine, again, to be a fly on that wall, can you imagine how bright that light must have been in the middle of this open space in Judea? The shepherds see the glory of the Lord surrounding angels. Then Matthew tells us after his birth in the little town of Bethlehem, the sky overhead was lit up by this unique star of wonder. And that star was so unusual and so bright that astrologers from the east felt compelled to follow it all the way from Persia to Judea. And then John speaks of this same light motif multiple times in the opening chapters of his gospel where he's laying down the truth about who Jesus is. He says, light has come into the world, a light that shines in the darkness. And Grant quoted it earlier. In him was life and that life was the light of men. This is a a common theme to understand Jesus in the gospel. You know, very few people uh, who know of the famous Dutch painter we call Rembrandt know that he was not only a brilliant artist, but he was a lover of scripture. And he painted many biblical scenes, including this one, which I picked out for today. It's called The Adoration of the Shepherds. I know that picture's kind of dark, but guess what? He intended it to be dark. He wanted to paint the stable in shadow. He was the master of light and shadow in his day. And he wanted it to be mostly dark, especially the, the, the stable, to see those shadows. Because in his mind, it, they represent the fallenness of mankind, the darkness that had enveloped the earth. But then in the manger, you see how the glow of light emanates from the Christ child. And what does it do? It illuminates the face of all those who are worshiping him. And that was Rembrandt's point. This is Yeshua. This is God's Messiah, the light of all men. Now, Isaiah was prophesying here in verse two about that first advent of Christ. And we know that's true. We looked at this verse last week. We know that's true because that is explicitly stated in Matthew chapter four, where the gospel writer looks to now the adult Jesus beyond the manger, but to the adult Jesus and the launch of his public ministry. Okay, so Matthew chapter four, says, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So a very explicit connection now between Isaiah 9-2 and Jesus, the adult Jesus now, coming into Capernaum. So for 30 years, he had been sort of bumping around Nazareth, right? And then he settles in, and by the way, Nazareth is in the land of Zebulun. And then he settles in Capernaum, which is in the land of Naphtali. Very good. And in this region is where Jesus first comes forward to teach in that synagogue. This is where his first miracles are done, where he heals the sick and he opens the eyes of the blind and he heals the lame where he casts out demons, where he even raises from people from the dead in Galilee of the Gentiles, in this former area of contempt, the light had dawned. This is where he began to preach the message of repentance and to prepare your hearts for the coming of the kingdom of God. It's in Galilee where he preaches some of his most famous messages, right? The Sermon on the Mount, the Bread of Life discourse, some of the most well-known parables. And this is an amazing principle 
that nobody would have foreseen that the light of mankind dawned here in Galilee, in this region of suffering and contempt that for so long had been so dark because of idolatry and sin and so ravaged by war, by the destruction wrought by Gentile nations. The people of Zebulun and Naphtali, not the religious establishment in, in Jerusalem, were given the first glimpse of God's Messiah. Now think about that. Think about how God tends to operate. Because you and I, the way we draw it, you know, it'd all be in Jerusalem because that's where the power center is. Not in Galilee. That doesn't make sense to us, right? But he comes out of Galilee of the Gentiles. Only a prophet speaking for God could have predicted that because that's how God operates. He tends to operate outside of our expectations. And so the light appeared to those who needed it the most, right? Wherever the darkness was darkest, that's who needed the light the most. And so Jesus came out of Galilee. And I, I can't say this for certain, but it makes sense to me that, that those were the people who were probably more likely to see their need for the light than the stubborn people in Jerusalem. And that's the way our God operates. He's good, isn't he? So this concept of light is very important in biblical theology. First, we have the manger in Bethlehem. And light breaks into our world, into time and space. Then we have Galilee. The light dawns on a dark land among a people walking in spiritual darkness. And then later in the Gospels, we see sort of the capstone of this picture. And we, we recently talked about it in our study of John. Toward the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus stands up at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And what a moment this must have been. You have to understand, with the backdrop of these four massive menorahs that would be lit each night during that festival in the temple courts, with that as the backdrop, Jesus stands up and he draws the connection between Isaiah's prophecy and himself. And he says, I am the light of the world. Whew. What a moment, right? First of all, the, to use the I am, the ego I me, right? The, this idea that, I'm both Lord and Messiah. I am the light of the world. Just as Isaiah prophesied, I am here. He who follows me shall not, what? Walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So there's the first fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, the dawning of this light. But now let's go on in the passage. Let's just, I want to read through verses three to five, and I want you to see if you can identify what these next couple of verses are pointing towards. Verse three, you shall, it seems like a weird transition here, right? You shall multiply the nation, who's you. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. Verse five, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Huh? So what is Isaiah saying here? Well, first of all, he's referring, pointing towards a particular person who will do two main things. Number one, he will change the course of history, breaking the yoke of a great enemy and ushering in a time of peace. And then secondly, he will change the condition of the people of Israel, multiplying them in number and transforming them from gloom and darkness to gladness and rejoicing. 
Wow. Now, without getting too nerdy on the Hebrew grammar here, each time Isaiah speaks of this person in these verses, he's describing him with the masculine singular second person and with a Hebrew stem that is causative. What does that mean? Well, he says, you shall, you shall, your presence, and again, you shall. So he's talking about some unique, singular, masculine person who causes all of this change and who causes all of this transformation to take place. Who's qualified to do that? <laughs> Good answer, Jesus, yeah. I mean, think about that. Who, who has the power to do those things you see on the screen right now, to bring about that type of change and transformation. So here's the thing. So uh, I mentioned a couple weeks back that I have a, uh, a Jewish study Bible, right? It's a rabbinical commentary on the Tanakh. And it's very interesting uh, when you handle a passage like this to go there and say, well, how on earth do the Jewish scholars deal with this, right? And, and the rabbinical commentaries, basically, they, they look at two possibilities here. About half of the rabbis will say, well, Isaiah must have been referring to an actual historical king of Israel, who did those things. Or they talk about an idealized but unknown king that will come in the future, right? So you'll find that they're split on this question. Now, some are gonna say, and a lot of them do say this, well, obviously, based on the context, he was talking about King Hezekiah, okay? Because Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz, and he is a good king, so it must have been Hezekiah. But does Hezekiah fit that bill historically? Absolutely not. Now, I know that God spared him and spared the city of Jerusalem from being conquered by the Assyrians, but under his watch, all of the rest of Judea was absolutely ravaged. So there's no way that you can say that he came even close to breaking the yoke of Assyria or establishing peace in the land. The other half of the rabbis will admit that Isaiah must be describing a particular idyllic Davidic king, the Messiah, right? The, the, the Messiah. But as we work our way through the text, you're gonna find out that whoever this king is, he has to be more than a human being in order to do those things. So let's look at verse three. Let's walk through these things and we'll see if you come to that same conclusion. He says, first of all, you shall multiply or enlarge the nation. Now, since the days of King Ahaz, has there been a time when the nation of Israel has been enlarged in the promised land? And the answer is no, this has not happened in the past. In fact, Judah is about to go into exile into Babylon at this time. And we know that 70 years later, when, when uh, Israel comes back to the land, only a remnant returns. Most of Israel stays in Babylon. They did not enlarge or increase in number at all. And after their time in Babylon, that was actually just the beginning of, of the Jewish people in their time of subjection to Gentile rulers. For the, for the rest, up until 1948, up until, from that point up until today, the Gentile rulers oppressed them, depopulated them, scattered them all over the world. So we're talking about uh, Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans and Byzantines and Arabs and Ottomans and finally the British. Right up until 1948. Their numbers have not been enlarged. God has maintained his remnant, and that's a beautiful thing to see, but this has not taken place in verse three. Now, Isaiah continues. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness or the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. 
So there's going to be a gladness among the Jewish people from being in the presence of this person who does these things. And that language of presence is always referred to, that always refers to God, not to human beings. To be in the presence of someone, that's Yahweh. That's got to be Yahweh. But being in his presence, this, this person who will do these things is going to produce a joy that is compared to the greatest things that an ancient person could experience. One, the harvest, because that meant survival, right? A great harvest meant survival. That meant prosperity. But then also victory in battle, which again meant survival. You're, this year, you're not going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And so these are metaphors that describe a robust nation that is growing and thriving but the Jewish people haven't experienced that in the land. They haven't experienced it. Again, the opposite is true. If you study Jewish history, it is story after story after story of suffering and deportation and depopulation. Let's look at verse four then. Maybe, th maybe this one's been accomplished in the past. For you shall break or shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, which is, of course, a reference back to the book of Judges and the story of Gideon. So this is an important word picture. Israel here is seen as having this heavy yoke of burden. And picture, you know, you've seen the, the, the diagrams of the ox, right, that are strapped to a cart, and they've got this really heavy yoke on their neck, and there's a, a taskmaster who sits in the cart, and the reference here is like, they're like the ox that is getting prodded by the staff and getting beaten by the rod. That's the picture here, and that's what the reality was for a small nation in the ancient Near East at this time with a big bully like Assyria off on the horizon. You basically had two choices as a nation. You can either you can either dip into your treasury, bow your knee, and pay off the big bully, like sort of like a mob boss, just pay him off to stay away, or you could not pay him and be destroyed. And so they were like carrying this heavy burden, like an ox being prodded and being beaten. Now, has Israel been able to break the yoke of their enemies since the days of King Ahaz or even Hezekiah? No, that has not happened. It's only gotten worse. Okay, verse five then has got to be fulfilled already, right? For every boot of the booted warrior, I'm not even going to read that because it's so confusing. Let me give you the CSB version of this. It'll make much more sense because you read that and you're like, what? How many times you were to use tumult this week? Other than Grant, Grant probably used tumult. Here's the CSB. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. And so in an ancient context, that basically meant that a war has ended and you've won. Because this is what you did. When the, war, the fighting was over and you'd won a battle, you collected all that gear, all your boots that are now, you know, they're all messed up and your garments that are filled with blood. The, the fighting's over. You don't need it anymore. It's a mess. So you just pile it up and you would burn it. Now, once again, I'll ask, has Israel experienced that type of victory? Has she been able to experience that type of peace on earth where they can just burn all of their gear? The answer again is no. So these are not past things that Isaiah is pointing to here. And it raises the question, if Israel hasn't experienced the fulfillment of verses three to five at any time in the past, what is it that Isaiah is prophesying about? And when will it come to pass? 
And hopefully you already know that you're already tracking with me, right, where I'm headed, and you already know the answer. The best explanation of this is that between verse 2 and verse 3, Isaiah's prophetic telescope is focusing now on that farthest mountain, the ultimate fulfillment in the distance. That his prophecy here, beginning in verse 3, leaps from the 8th century B.C. over the first advent of Christ, over our time today, the age of the Gentiles, and all the way to the day when the nation of Israel will finally see their Messiah and recognize him for who he is. This is the end of days. The context tells us this. This is a reference to the coming millennial kingdom of Christ. And the obvious answer to the question is, well, who is this person that's going to do those things? We know the answer, right? He is both Yahweh, and we're going to find out in verse 6, he's called Mighty God, Eternal Father, and he is a Davidic king who will physically reign in Zion. Friends, there is no other explanation, no other rational explanation that he has to be those things, both Yahweh and a Davidic king. And there's coming a day when his light will once again shine upon the land and his people Israel will finally see it and they will finally see him for who he truly is. And in that day, he will, and we've already sung this this morning, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and we don't always look at the lyrics. We've already sang it. When he comes, he will ransom captive Israel. He will ransom them, and the Jewish people will finally rejoice in his presence. As Isaiah said in verse 3, they will rejoice because he will be present among them, and Zion will be lifted up among the nations. That is when Israel will be multiplied. Again, verse 3. But before all that can happen, this person has to fulfill what Isaiah prophesies in verse 4. He has to shatter the yoke of Israel's burden and the rod of her oppressors. Well, we have passages that speak of this. Zechariah is probably the most important one. I'll put it on the screen. You know this passage probably. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, says Yahweh. Then the Lord, wow, wait, Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle? Yeah, that's what it says. Yahweh will do that. But look, he's physical as well. Verse four, in that day, his feet will stand. He has feet. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. The power of Christ returning in all of his glory splits the Mount of Olives. How many of you guys have been to Israel? You've seen the size of the Mount of Olives. Amazing. So that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. He goes on. Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries or the stars will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be what? There will be light. Friends, this is how peace on earth finally becomes a reality and how all the bloody garments and the weapons of war can finally be rolled up and thrown on the fire to be burned. It's when the Prince of Peace arrives again and when he ushers in his kingdom of peace. It's the only answer. Unless you think mankind is moving towards peace, 
Raise your hand if you think we're moving towards peace in this world. It's going to require God doing that. In the famous chapter of Ezekiel 39, which catalogs the final battle, the battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel speaks of the Lord's great victory, and here's how he describes the aftermath. It fits right in line. It says, my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Now look at what he says. Then the inhabitants of Israel's cities will go out and kindle fires and burn the weapons, the small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the clubs and spears. For seven years, they will use them to make fires. They will not gather wood from the countryside or cut it down from the forest, for they will use the weapons to make fires. That's the peace that Christ will usher in. And where will he do it? In Israel, in the land. And then finally, Zechariah adds this, that Messiah's kingdom will be worldwide. He says, the bow of war will be cut off. War ceases, and he will speak peace to the nations. Imagine this, peace to all nations? What? Even in the Middle East? How's that possible? Only God. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Friends, one day our world is going to be transformed completely by his glorious return. And in that day, Jesus, the radiance of the Father, will fill the entire earth with his light. I cannot wait to see this, man. And we as his children, we will finally, we will get, we'll be able to declare what Jesus said 2,000 years ago we should pray for and ask for. We will actually be, get, be able to say, thy kingdom has come. Thy will is done on earth as it was in heaven, as it is in heaven, right? Man. Now, we're going to wrap up here in a second. I'm just a little bit of a side note. I don't often bang this drum, but I'm going to bang it today because this is just one of those moments where I feel like I have to. For all my brothers and sisters who I love dearly, who hold to a biblical theology that is guided by what we call covenant theology, a way to interpret scripture. For all my brothers and sisters who I love and respect who hold to an amillennial position of the end times, this is a hard one. I, I have a question about how you interpret passages like this. How do you do it? If you believe that national and ethnic Israel has been utterly rejected by God and set aside and has no role to play in the future, how do you interpret this passage? If you believe that there is no millennial kingdom to come, how do you interpret this passage? How do you interpret Isaiah 9 without, and, and, and this is just utterly spiritualizing everything and applying it to the church? How do you do that? With all the specific geographic references, the constant references to the land and to national Israel. And again, if you, if you hold a covenant theology in your awe mill, God bless you, we're brothers or sisters, right? Let's talk about this because I, I, I told somebody recently, um, in the last couple of years, I have tried to become Amil. Have you ever tested your faith in this way? You're like, okay, I've always, I was taught this, I've always believed it, but you know what? I'm gonna intentionally go out and try to become a different perspective. I'm gonna become Amil. And I studied it and I studied it and I cannot get there. Because then all of these things, they don't literally mean anything. There's no historical grammatical interpretation. They don't mean anything literally, it's all spiritualized. 
And so let's have a discussion about that. It's a worthy one. It's important, especially as the time draws near that we interpret these things right and we get our eschatology sort of worked out in our, in our minds and hearts. Amen? Amen? All right. Well, that takes us up to verse six, the most famous of all Christmas texts. And so that means we're gonna have to wrap up today. We're gonna get to that next time. But let me come back to where I started this morning. As we look forward to celebrating Christmas this year, let's make sure that we, that we are holding to a healthy balance in the way we see the coming of the Savior. We know, and this, if what I talked about today gets you excited, I'm glad for that, because I'm excited about it. We know that out there in the future, there's this huge mountain where Isaiah 9 is gonna be ultimately realized, and that is an awesome thing to consider. But then in the present, we also have to make sure that this Christmas, we're celebrating the mountain we're on right now and the goodness of God right where he has us in the time that he has us so that we don't, we don't get drawn away by all the trappings and the busyness of the season, but we're like, you know what? Look what God has done in our time. Look what he's done for us, that we're rightfully glorifying God for the good news of the gospel that came with this first advent and celebrating that well, beginning in Bethlehem, right? Coming out of Galilee, and then finally at the cross of Jerusalem. All of those things together, right? The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, said Isaiah. So let's make sure we're grateful that the word made flesh visited the land 2,000 years ago in order to shine the light of God's glory and to give himself as an atoning sacrifice for you and I. This is the good news that by God's grace alone, we've been granted the gift of forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. And as Luke says in the Christmas story, this is the good news of great joy for all those whom God has given eyes to see and ears to hear. And so let me come back real fast to Rembrandt's painting. And I just want to ask you a question. In the darkness of that stable, you see two shepherds who are kneeling beside the manger, aren't they? But then you also see some others, one's holding a lantern, Right? He has his own light. And some of them are sort of standing in the back, almost looking disinterested. And this was apparently by design in the way that Rembrandt painted this piece. And so I want you to think, is each one of us somehow in some way represented in this painting? And where would you put yourself in this scene? Would you, would you, have, would you be right now, consider your spiritual walk right now, would you be one of those shepherds kneeling and worshiping? Worshiping with abandon. Give up everything. Just hit my knees and worship him in the light. Or would you be one of those standing back and sort of hesitating? Or worse, would you be out of the frame, hiding from the Savior? Where are you at spiritually this year at Christmas time? Be a good thing to talk to the Lord about. So let's do that now. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to send you just into a a little bit of quiet time to process through where your heart's at right now as we think more about Christmas and about the coming of Christ. To just take a few moments to, to pray and to talk to the Lord about anything that he brought to your heart this morning. Let's do that.